the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's good to be with you. This is a season where we celebrate not just the birth of Jesus, but his whole life. As a matter of fact, the, there's a lot of times a, of a, a cohesion to the whole story of Christ by putting the birth in a cave and connecting that to the tomb in which Jesus was buried in. We were reminded of the reason, the purpose for which Jesus lived. His whole life ma- mattered. Um, not only his death and resurrection and ascension, but the way he lived his whole life. The Word became flesh. This is the meaning of the incarnation, that God came and dwelt among us in Christ Jesus. And the Gospel reading focuses us on this Jesus this morning, primarily the light of the world. Jesus, the Word, came to us as the light of the world. The colic this morning pointed us back to the light of the world, saying, you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. And then we prayed, grant that this light, kindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives. John the Baptist came to bear witness to this light. We read in that first chapter of John that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He even came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. Can, how, how can this be? This is my question. When, we, when I read this text, I ask myself, how can it be that the incarnate word, the one who breathed us into light, comes among us and somehow we cannot recognize it. This is, every few years, I get to talk about one of my favorite stories from Flannery O'Connor. It was her last story, the last story right before um, she passed away called Revelation. And she wrote it at a time of her life where she was in and out of doctor's offices. And so she wrote a story about herself being in doctor's offices or or I would say this, about herself, not necessarily about herself. However, you might think it is herself kind of contemplating her own darkness. Um, But it's about this lady named Mrs. Turpin who goes into a doctor's office. And she's very, very clear when she walks into the office, she wants to proclaim to everyone there, should they think that she is there for her own need, that she is actually there because of her husband's need. Her husband has an ailment, and she is there because of him. Don't think that she has any need of her own. And so she's in the doctor's office to quickly realize that this large personality, represented by her large posture, walks into a room and realizes and starts complaining and muttering to herself how small the room is. And then where was she going to sit? Ms. Turpin grazes around the room 
and she starts to judge everyone that she sees. She talks about the manner that some people need to get control of their kids, that, that they should have had them scoot over so her husband could sit down. She starts determining the class of the people based on what sort of shoes they were wearing. She pities everyone for, their, for various reasons and starts very quickly to thank God that she's not like them. She even judges the way the place was run. The room was too small. It's hardly bigger than her own garage. There was no place to sit. It was taking too long. And they left cigarette butts in the ashtray too long. She would have dumped them out far earlier than they would have. She would have kept up with things better. And then she starts a little bit of self-deprivation. And you're like, oh, maybe she does have a little bit of a self-awareness. But you realize very quickly that she's simply fishing for compliments. She talks about her own way, hoping that everyone else would do what, exactly what they did and saying, oh, you're not that heavy. Come on, tell me how good I am. Simply sort of affirming the things that she already believes about herself and contrast the way she thinks about everyone else. And then when the one lady who she has already named the white trash lady begins to talk, she talks about what they do and what they have on their farms and the way that they run their life. And this lady who she's already put in her class, the lowest class, says, oh, I would never have hogs. They're nasty, stinking hogs. And now, now this is offensive to Mrs. Turpin because Mrs. Turpin has hogs herself the white trash lady is talking in this way. So Miss Turpin declares, pipes up, she has, oh, oh, but our hogs are not dirty, and in fact, they don't stink. She runs a hog parlor where, where their pen is concrete, and she says that their feet never touch the, the ground. It's clear that this is a clear and accurate reflection of herself. But she cannot see it. Oh, I'm not like them. Oh, I, I, I am in your class, but I'm not dirty. I don't stink. I'm not here because I have need. There's no reason uh, in her mind that she would need anything from anyone there, let alone anyone outside of herself. She says, if there's one thing I am, it is grateful. Thank you, Jesus, she declares out loud, for making things the way that it is. It could have been different, but she mutters, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. There's one girl in there who's on to her. She Peers gazes across the room at her. She starts to wonder why this young girl is looking at her in such a judgmental way. It's almost like this girl can see right through her. This girl is, is educated. She's got something on Mrs. Turpin. As Mrs. Turpin begins to declare how grateful she is that she's not like everyone else in the room, this young girl with all her blemishes, her skin in blue color, takes the book that she's reading and chucks it across the room, striking Mrs. Turpin in the forehead. 
before jumping on her and choking her, Mrs. Turpin flailing and crying out that this has got to be enough. This has got to stop. And when the dust settles, Mrs. Turpin says, what have you got to say? She's appalled. What have you got to say? And the girl says, go back to the hell where you came from, you warthog. She places her in the position of those dirty, stinking, well, not her hogs. Not her hogs. But the hogs whose feet actually touch the ground. Who are actually dirty. But it doesn't take her long to realize that this girl sees something in her that she needs to take stock of. Matter of fact, she goes home immediately and she goes to the pen of, of hogs, the hog parlor. And she stands up against the fence and she starts to look at the hogs and she cries out as if she's crying out to God. Don't call me that. I'm not a warthog. Don't call me a hog. I'm not like that. I'm not one of them. I'm not like that. It's a scandalous moment that this young girl points out in that waiting room. She pointed out who Miss Turpin really was. She gave her a name. But as Miss Turpin sitting there looking over her hogs, she looks out across the field and has a vision. And it's a highway reaching into the heavens, purple. And at the front of the line are those slave workers. The front of the line are those she is called white trash. They're dancing. The band is struck up. They're happy. They're joyful. They're dancing. And at the end of the line, there she is. She sees herself. How am I a hog? How am I like them? A bridge carrying people towards heaven, a line, a parade, in which she is the last one to see. To see things how they really are. Finally, she was beginning to acknowledge who she was. Maybe, that we, maybe we have the same problem. Maybe the reason why we struggle to see the light until we find ourselves in the moment of crisis is because it's hard for us to even come to the place where we figure that we have any need at all. Let alone there's a need that we can't provide for ourselves. And so we walk into the waiting room, we walk into our work, we walk down the streets of West Asheville and we say, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. But then in our moment of crisis, all of a sudden, we find ourselves in solidarity with those who are in darkness. We suddenly find ourselves like them, looking down and seeing the dirt on our feet, seeing the darkness in our souls, Finally, we realize who we are. 
This is the name we have taken for ourselves. However, what we read in this text to the, this letter written uh, in behalf of the exiles that we have been called by a different name. Isaiah 62 says, The nations shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory, and you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. He names us. We read in all of the texts today that he clothes us, that he adopts us, that he makes us heirs. All of this is the initiative of God. This is what God does. We are simply recipients of it. He gives us our name. He puts the robe on us. He chooses us. He, we are not born of him. We are adopted into him. He chooses us and takes us as his own. Those who cannot acknowledge their need, though, often find ourselves at the rear of the line, the last to see things. But our sight is often like those, like the sight of Mrs. Turpin. We often forget. We often miss the light. We bypass somehow, even in our own darkness, even with the brightness of the glory of God, we miss it. But we are in need. And it's in this season of life where we read of Christ coming among us, where Christ comes and takes on flesh, where Christ moves in and lives life among us, that we realize just how in need we are. In Isaiah, it took exile for God's people to come to terms with their own injustices. They struggled to see their own sin. They even blamed their enemies for their sin. God dashed their babies' heads off the rock. God, take vengeance against them. And finally, they realized that they are there for the very same thing. And their heads are lifted up to Zion as God invites them home. God began to change their hearts. And it came as he, as he shone light on their condition. Finally, they saw God. In the John reading over the next few weeks, we'll read of Nicodemus, the one who earlier had come to, come to Jesus by night. He was in darkness, and we don't read until the end of John again. All of the sudden, who is it? The one who is in darkness, who stands on Calvary next to Jesus, taking him off of the cross, bringing all of his wealth and embalming perfumes and, uh, and all of the things that he has to, and, and lavishing them on this Christ who is being lowered from the cross. Finally, Nicodemus is in the light. This one who was in darkness had seen a great light. And today, this is our invitation. After a season of saying, God, we are in need. We are utterly helpless. We say, God, come. Move among us. Live among us. This is our invitation, God. Give us sight that we might, as John says, receive the light. John says all things came into being through him. And what all things, and what came through to him, 
Through him was the light, the life of all men. The light shines brightly in darkness. And this is what the prophet prays in Isaiah. That all the nations would see. That the light that Christ took on would be the light that we take on ourselves. That would draw nations to the one from whom we've gained life. The Lord will cause righteousness. The Lord will cause praise to sprout up. That we would become a crown like Christ in the hand of the Lord. We would be no longer termed forsaken. And the land shall no longer be termed desolate. But you shall be called, listen, my delight is in her. Church, the Lord delights in you. So much so that while we were in darkness and blinded to our own need, the Lord took on flesh and came and lived among us. And so arise, shine, for your light has come. The light shines in the darkness. Lord, give us eyes to see. Amen.